Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. So today on the show, Jordan Carlos is here. Jordan is a, he's a comedian. He does stand-up comedy. He's a comedy writer. He's an actor. He's a, he's done a little bit of everything and uh, and still does a little bit of everything. He's he's really interesting, really funny, really smart. The way that I know Jordan actually is uh, I used to watch him on the Nightly Show, and I miss that show, man. I didn't realize it until Jordan and I started talking, but that show really helped form a worldview for me in a way that I wasn't even aware of at the time. For those of you that don't remember this show or don't know what it was, the Nightly Show used to follow the Daily Show from like 2015 to 2016 on Comedy Central. It was in the the 11:30 spot that used to be the Colbert Report, and when Stephen Colbert left uh, Comedy Central to go take over David Letterman's show, they needed a new show in that spot at Comedy Central. And rather brilliantly, I think they decided to give Larry Wilmore a show. It was a show like the Daily Show, where it kind of analyzed the news of the day, except. The majority of, of the writing staff and the on-air correspondents were people of color. And for me, it was really nice to see news and news analysis and news humor told from a, from a different point of view, to hear other people's take on, on what was happening. you got to remember, 2015, 2016, this is the time when Donald Trump is riding down the escalator in Trump Tower. This is the time when there's you know, 17, 18, whatever it was, Republicans all competing for the nomination. This is the time when Hillary Clinton was running. There was a lot going on in the world, a lot to make sense of. And uh, Jordan was on the writing staff at The Nightly Show, and he was also an on-air contributor. He uh, he had a, <laughs> a couple funny characters that he used to do. Kind of the most famous was a, uh, a frazzled Hillary Clinton aide that uh, Larry would interview him. And, uh, you know, this just happened at the Clinton camp. Uh, what do you what do you think about it? And the character's name was Carlos Jordanson. And, uh, <laughs> and Jordan would cut to him and he'd just be sweating or nervous or, you know, he was always just sort of afraid of uh, of getting yelled at by an off screen secretary Clinton. But uh, that show, it only lasted like a season or two. And Comedy Central ended up pulling the plug on it before the 2016 election. And I know for me, I was devastated by that. Like, I found the show to be very funny, but I also just found it to be so relevant and so helpful just for, for me to open my worldview up a little bit and to hear other points of view and just just start to get an understanding from other people's perspective. And I think as the country has tried to make sense of the death of George Floyd and people are out in the street protesting now and and talking a lot more openly about race and, and race issues, I think that show is more relevant than ever. And I wish it was still around. I wish we still had Larry and Jordan and, and all the other correspondents just helping us make sense of the news every day. Because, man, this is <laughs> this is the time for it, I, I got to say. So Jordan and I talk a lot about The Nightly Show just because, again, for me, it was it was such a big influence. And it was... Uh, it was a show I really cared about, and it's what got me first to follow Jordan. But he has uh, he's had a great career since then as well. He's actually uh, he's a comedy writer primarily now. He writes on First Wives Club on BET. And he's actually got a script writing class coming up, uh, teaching people how to write a spec script for cable and streaming shows. Uh, if you don't know, spec scripts are, if you're, if you're trying to get a writing job, 
you write a script for an existing show that's already on TV, the existing characters and everything, you dream up what you would want an episode to look like and you script it out and that becomes a calling card until you've had a chance to actually write real scripts that get on the air. So Jordan's going to be teaching uh, an online course. It's through the pit in New York City about writing a cable or streaming comedy spec script. And he's got a lot of uh, a lot of awesome people that are going to be dropping in on that course as well, including uh, one of his nightly show co-stars, Francesca Ramsey, is going to be making an appearance in there. So definitely check that out. There's more info on, on Jordan's Twitter. He's at Jordan Carlos. But I really enjoyed talking to Jordan just about sort of his background, how he got into this business, and seeing it from so many different angles as a comedian, as a performer, as a writer. And the other piece of this interview that I didn't even expect to be a thing uh, when Jordan and I first started talking about having him on the show um, is sort of the role that race plays in in all the jobs that he's had uh, because of because of George Floyd and because of sort of where the national conversation ended up going, it became more and more relevant. And it's something Jordan's been posting about pretty openly on Twitter. So we talk a lot about race uh, in this in this episode. And, and again, in a way that I didn't go into this saying, let's talk about race in the TV industry. But Jordan has a great perspective on it. And I think if people are really sincere right now, about wanting to correct some of the wrongs of the past, about wanting to be more open about representation of black voices and, and other voices of color in the writing room, uh, in in the staffing of a show, in who you're putting on air. I think some of the some of the insight Jordan offers is very helpful. And yeah, hopefully those of us that are that are saying on, on Twitter and stuff that we're that we're open to listening this is a great place to start listening. These are, uh, these are the types of conversations that should be happening. And, uh, you know, I hope this is just the beginning of it. So here is my interview with comedian, writer, actor, Jordan Carlos. You're, uh, you're down in New York, right? Yeah. How are things looking down in your neck of the woods? Okay. You know, every, everything is, um, you would walk outside the door and not know what was happening. Um, I live in a very uh, quiet section of brooklyn and um yeah i mean i'm glad that uh we definitely avoided some of the um the more abrasive elements of of the the demos i'll just put i'll just say demos and uh which is what america is all about but you know there are there are certain side effects that uh i i could i could do without yeah and um but we had a peaceful march uh, yesterday, which was great that we participated in. Nice. And, um, yeah, it was it was cool, man. It was cool, you know. But yeah, I mean, it, it definitely put a spotlight on the, the incongruities and the injustices in the city. I mean, I live in a I live in a very working class neighborhood that's very mixed uh, racially and and economically, and um, it, it's I think it's just kind of there's a a very it's very middle class, but and working class. But I feel that the places where you see the most um, tension in New York City are the most uh, gentrified areas mm. where you just have it is. Oh, boy. Sim Sima. Really? Sim Sima. In oh, terms yeah. of in terms of like the protesting and, and the activism and all that kind of stuff. I think so. I think there's. I mean, there's just another element to it, which is, you know, to have your neighborhood totally radically reshaped and reformed and and to have this kind of like drumbeat of um 
you know, high rents and high prices, just uh, pricing people out. And, and then you add, add all these crises to it. Yeah. It, it just foments. It really does foment. That you makes know? sense, I guess. Yeah. I hadn't, yeah. I hadn't even thought about, yeah, just sort of that, that pressure that's been going on for what the last 15 or 20 years of gentrification. Yeah, oh my God. Yeah. This yeah, feels yeah. like it could be a tipping point. So yeah. like I, I know you through the nightly show. That was sort of how I first came to know you. And just, oh I, I, <laughs> I miss that show and I've missed it since it's come off the air, but like, I really miss it right now. Like, I just feel like the whole team over there, you guys did such a great job of sort of breaking down these complicated issues. And especially when it came to racial issues and, you know, just sort of really dealing with that stuff head on. Uh, I'm just curious, like if you've thought about what would be happening if you guys were still doing the nightly show and there was a show last week or there was a show tonight, like what would be happening in the writer's room right now? What would the discussions look like you think i'm sure it would just it would be all about well first you know i i would just say that larry was way ahead of this he understood the that the race itself in 2016 was a greatly um th- there were people divided racially it yeah. wasn't he called know, it, it the unblackening i mean that was called, that was how you guys branded the uh the election he called it the unblackening and i think it was a very bitter pill for a lot of people to swallow they didn't want to believe that they wanted to believe that um, you know they wanted to hide it behind like um, whatever whatever fervor there was in Trump's face. They wanted to dress it up as uh, as economic insecurity yeah. or you know things like that, um, which uh, are all valid. Those these are these are valid reasons as to why someone would put their their trust and faith in a certain candidate. However, we knew by and large by that point that it, it had more to do with identity than anything else. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's funny. I think that a lot of people had, um, weren't really on the same wavelength as the, as, um, the writer's room and what people were putting out uh, on the nightly show. I, I would just say that sometimes it was like, maybe it's our writing. Maybe it's this. I, I'm usually the kind of person, you know, I blame myself and, and stuff. And it, hey, hey, that's all always part of it. It's comedy. Yeah. But and it's easy to go there too. I mean, that's easy to go there. that's the first place you go. Yeah. The first thing I never I never blame the audience, but just like, but I I will say that it is crazy how many times I think about how hip people are now and how open people are now within the past just four weeks to the kind of message and programming that we put out there in 2016 and 2015 and the beginning of 2014 yeah. it, or the, the end. Um, and it, it, it hurts my heart really. You know, I really feel like, you know, um, that that was a missed opportunity in ways. Cause I can think of right now. I mean, I saw Michelle Alexander trending. Michelle Alexander wrote a, uh, an amazing book called the 13th. It was all about the 13th amendment. Uh-huh. And in the 13th amendment, there's, there's a small part, you know, that was carved out, uh, I guess by the Southern Democrats that would that said that within the 13th Amendment, even though it did free slaves, it, it said that if you were you know um, in jail or in prison, and this applies today, that, uh, that uh, slavery can't exist within the penal right. system. Yep. Right. So, so that 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 uh, let it that amendment let it remain a working viable part of our society. So right. in that documentary. Part this this thing I wrote about the roller coaster of emotions when learning about either a police involved killing or 
if someone, you know, if there was um, a mass uh, killing, what we do is we, as as people of color, is we get in this roller coaster and first shock and emotion and like, oh my God, I hope everyone's okay, N- not this again, and then and then you you wait and the lotto, it's like the lotto of whether or not the shooter is black or white, right. you know? Yeah. And I remember Larry doing that and just just crushing it, you know? And I was like, you know, we, and now, you know, people are listening to Michelle Alexander. Yeah. Whereas before, she was just somebody on the academic fringe that's trending on Twitter. Right. You know, it, it, the problem was always there. It was just people's willingness to listen, thinking it was somebody else's problem. And um, I think now people are, their eyes are finally opening to um, the need to dismantle uh, so much of um, so so much of what our society is predicated on, you know? Yeah. I mean, just that, that yeah. term systemic racism, it, it's not something that I've fully understood until really unpacking it, you know, in the last week or two, I guess, because I, you know, I, I'm majority white. I'm 75 percent white. My grandfather came over from the from the Philippines, but like, oh, okay. like I, I identify as white effectively, and that's that's how I present to the world. I guess that's what I look like. So, you know, sure. it's just these aren't these aren't issues I've had to really think about or deal with. But but I think you're right, just in terms of sort of the nightly show being so far ahead of its time. And for me, just it was the first time sort of hearing some of these conversations and really like, you know, I started following you on Twitter at that point and sort of all the, everyone from the show, you know, Francesca Ramsey and, uh, and Holly Walker and because like, yeah, yeah, I love the message. And it was also, it was one of those shows like, you know, I love the daily show and I love Colbert and I used to watch like the first act, you know, on YouTube the next day, just the monologue sections. And maybe if the guest was interesting, I might stick around for the end of the show. And I found with the nightly show, I would go out of my way to watch the entire show just because like, I love the panel discussions. I just like, there was so much in it that just, it was stuff that I was hearing talked about openly for the first time, really on, on national television. It felt like, and, and, you know, like you said, it's, it's sort of a shame that there's not, it doesn't feel like there's a forum like that right now for, you know, the majority of Americans, I guess, to, to go and sort of hear from voices that, that are new to them or from perspectives that they're not, uh, that they're not used to hearing. Sure. Sure. I mean, that is, that is valid, man. And, and, and that is the, that's the uh, sad part, you know, is that, but that's also, that is television, television, you know, you're, you're trying to take uh, art and commerce and merge them. And sometimes uh, it just doesn't work out. And I don't know, Hey, I'll, I'll put it this way. I'd be down for a reboot. If there were a reboot, <laughs> I'd yeah. jump right back in. Because I know how we would handle these things. I know we would handle them with, with a lot of like uh, humor. I mean, I, I thought like, you know, the looting that happened um, here in New York City, all I could do was look at it and say like, oh, okay. I, I put some correspondent out front of Macy's and say that like, you know, even in the time of, uh, of looting, you know, New Yorkers, they, they love a good deal. You know, they're, <laughs> they're not, they're not, <laughs> they're not, not at Bergdorf. They're yeah. down at Macy's, right. you know, that's for that five finger discount. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think like there's just ways to laugh through um, horrible times. Yeah, you know, I, I think of these. I've always thought of this one. Um, I'm a I love history a lot. And there's you know, there's this old photo of these two black infl- infantrymen in World War Two. They they were shelling, you know, like a 50 cal were shelling this position in 
and I, I'm guessing like France or something like that. Yeah. But it said on the shelves, it said Easter eggs for Adolf. You know, it was <laughs> these people. You know, the, people have still found ways in time. Yeah. You know, to to get to get a laugh in. You know. Even when they're facing certain death. There's something, too, about comedy, I think, that just it can allow truth to come out in a way that sometimes it's hard to deal with when you go straight on. Right. Oh, for sure. For sure. You know, we need you need humor to it's like somebody tell a joke, you know, somebody somebody tell a joke and all, and all this to, to relieve, if not momentarily. Yeah. Just just the uh, the pressure of, of today. Yeah. And it's uh, the the needs, the need for it is stronger than ever right now. And it's so strange. I feel like just sort of having all these racial issues really come front and center at a time when there's this pandemic going on. And so like when you sort of need to laugh the most, you've got a couple of comedians, you know, hold up in their houses producing some late night shows like with an iPhone or whatever. Like there's just not that... there's not that outlet, you know, right now. And it's, oh, uh, certainly. I think there's, there's, there's an outlet for people that are just being, you know, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just saying that are unapologetically black or who they are, you know, like I feel like, um, Oh my God, something I wanted to do for George, George Floyd, you know, uh, with all respect and may he rest in power. I feel as though, you know, you could have done a sketch where it was like the perfect victim pageant, you know what I mean? Mm. Where like you have to find the perfect victim and, like Miss America, yeah. you find you, you know you find the person that best represents because it seems like people are not able to take in a victim or they 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 are suspicious of someone unless they are perfect, right? And and that's the same thing that happened with Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks is handpicked to be who she was, you know, to do to do to serve the function that she that she served. There was a woman previous to her that did the same thing, but she was a lesbian, mm. so. It was bad for business, you yeah. know, it's, and that kind of like, like understanding that about ourselves, which is why we get things like Michael Brown and the New York Times saying he was no angel right. or somebody like Candace Owen looking into George Floyd's past, which is just, it's, it's so disgusting yeah. that I would love to make a joke out of it. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. No, totally. Yeah. I'm with you. And yeah, it is that that sort of uh, the victim deserved it in some way, you know, and, yes. and, and you see that across the like, you know, it's that it's the rape right. thing. Right. Of like, well, how we yeah. address we want we want an unimpeachable victim. Right. We want an unimpeachable victim, because if we anything less than that, they can be thrown to the dogs and, yeah. you know, whatever. That's that's what it is. But even so, then, I mean, like, look at Tamir Rice, like how a 12 year old, like, you know, or the, the right. kids at Sandy Hook, you know, like first graders, like. It just stuff oh, yeah. stuff doesn't change even if you have you know you, you get the the most perfect you know innocent person in front of it of course i mean it, what you want to believe the pretzel logic of it all right i mean i think both sides everybody all americans do it we love somebody despite their you know despite um their their flaws and foibles doesn't matter i i think like uh i was listening to this um you know, I've been kind of like paying attention to this thing with Alison Roman, a chef named Alison Roman, who uh, had beef with Chrissy Teigen. And there were oh, yeah, racial yeah, yeah. implications. Right. Yep. And then they, you know, racial implications. And, they, and then somebody found a photo of Chrissy Teigen uh, dressed up as like Pocahontas for like for for Halloween. And it's like, oh, my God, you know, it's it's on and on. But will we is, is Chrissy Teigen going to get canceled for her behaviors? You know, like, right. I, I think that the um, even like the purity test of it all has has us 
going loco. And uh, I, I'm not quite sure what the answer is, but I do know that the proceedings are hilarious. Yeah. So uh, that that's that's what I love to I'd love to you know dig into. If only there were the nightly show. <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's so weird too. Just thinking about like the arc of television that like you know when we were younger like a show got canceled and that was it and now it like yeah. curb your enthusiasm has done like what 10 seasons but across like 20 years <laughs> you're just like how does that yeah. math add up but, but and like by the same token survivors got like 45 seasons or something and you're like it, it didn't it start in like the 2000s like yes so i want to sort of dig into your origins a little bit too what what's your background like where where did you grow up so i grew up in dallas uh and um yeah, hold for applause. And uh, <laughs> it was just a really, um, I mean, my parents gave me a, a, a great, great childhood. Just, uh, it was, it was very, um, they're very nurturing. They're great people. They um, come from classic American backgrounds. My mother was a, uh, her family, is, they were farmers in Mississippi. My dad is, comes from like a, um, a tradition of like um, auto workers in Michigan and somehow some way we found ourselves to Dallas but <laughs> I think it was good med school so my dad okay. after med school you have to you know you're uh, um you do your uh, fellowship and so he did that in Dallas and so uh yeah we didn't I mean we were all kind of like fish out of water we're like what the hell is this place yeah. you know what is Texas uh, but we we made a home there and um you know um I got really into comedy when I was in high school so I started off doing improv and you know, uh, I also love to, to draw. So I was, I was the editorial cartoonist, um, oh, cool. at my high school newspaper. So that, that kind of got me into jokes. You know, I was, I was one of those kids that was like into Calvin and Hobbes, man. Yeah, yeah. Totally. You know, man. Yeah. Fuck the man. And then, uh, <laughs> so yeah, by the time I got to college, I wanted to, um, try comedy all the more. And I, I did, uh, did, did improv in college, but by the time I graduated, I realized I'd love to write jokes a bit more. So um, when I graduated, I started doing stand-up comedy, and then uh, that made no money. Yeah. So I just uh, got a job in advertising. Did that for a couple of years, which was fantastic. Was Peter this in, in New York at this point? You're like a Madison yeah. Avenue guy. This is Madison Avenue. I was a Madison Avenue guy. Um, I worked for a company called McCann Erickson. I, I oh did. sure, yeah, 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 yeah. They paid great. Um, very madman. Uh, but I had to leave. Um, and, uh, I, cause I, anyway, it wasn't, it wasn't my dream. Right. Yeah. So a lot of ad people do this. A lot of, there's a lot of comedians that have started off as ad people. Jim Gaffigan is a great example. Um, and I believe that, uh, oh gosh, Bob Newhart, Bob Newhart was, a wow. guy as well. huh. yeah. I didn't so, know that with either of them. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of rejection, yep. just like, just like in comedy. <laughs> <laughs> there's very little thanks. Yep. And, uh, yeah. Um, and you know, that's, there's a lot of similarities. So, um, I saved up five grand. That's right. Heath, $5,000 <laughs> and I quit to do comedy full time. Um, and then I passed the burning sands and a couple of years later, I started to, to book roles and things like that. And, and, um, I became Stephen Colbert's black friend on, uh, they hired me to do that. That was kind of nuts. And I got like an agent and a manager from that. Oh, wow. And were like, you, were you on air for that? Or was that just like, because I've seen the bits with the photo where it's just like the was, photo of Stephen with you. Did, did you have some on air things with him too? I was on air once or twice, okay. but it was like, 
it was insane. And, uh, you know, um, those things keep you floating. Like you're just like jumping from floating igneous rock yeah. to igneous rock. Just trying not a, to touch a... the lava. Yes. <laughs> God, it's, you know, just, yeah. Trying to keep those knees up in the air. And, right. um, cause it's New, it's New York city right. you know, they're not around with the red. So, um, so anyway, I, I swung from one body to the other until I got, God, I was on a show, a TV show called I Just Want My Pants Back. Before that, I was I was a host on a, a Nickelodeon show. So I've done it. I've done a I've done a lot. And I've, um, but I, I would say that probably the most formative job was the nightly show um, that definitely, you know, gave me a, a real education into creating and producing television and what it what it took and, um, you know, how to convey yourself on screen quickly and how, you know, just going for the laugh, going for trying to, trying to then instill a message after you get the laugh, et cetera. And uh, it was a great group of people, man. You know? Yeah. How did you and get, how did you get involved? I'm sorry. I, I was just curious, like how you got involved with them. That was, you know, that, that feels like such a, such an important like, piece of your career arc. Uh, like most things I do, I stalked the guy that was um, running the show. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I have this weird thing where I just kind of like, um, in comedy in new york you kind of you hustle a lot and you you eat what you kill right right so um not to be too florid about it but yeah you just i found out that this guy was going to be on this panel about like uh green solutions in hollywood yeah and uh is this rory or is this someone else okay sure yeah so i track him down to this panel discussion i'm literally the only person under the age of 50 there you know <laughs> yeah and i would oh i would also add that norman lear was on the panel oh wow so i was like you know, okay. these two titans. yeah so i had to kind of like figure out questions for them that I both get their attention but not make it look like i was monopolizing the time you right. know, like in, in the q a so yeah after that was done um i didn't even talk to lear i was just like you're, you're too great and right you know, I, I probably turned to a pillar of salt and, you know, uh, if I, if I talk to you, so that I just turned to Rory and I was like, well, I hear that you're starting this show, yada, yada, yada. And he was like, yes, um, come to my office tomorrow and we'll talk some more about it. Wow. So, yeah. So I went to his office and Rory's the kind of guy I, you know, I was prepared with notes and things like that, what to discuss and like practicing in the mirror. And then he just talked for an hour and a half yeah. and, uh, and then he had me come meet Larry and they talked for an hour and a half. And I was like, I'm going to get this job. And then Larry was like, so do you have like a writing packet or anything like that? I was like, Oh God, I don't. So I, so went back into a corner in New York city. You have to think on your feet. And I said, yeah. why don't you come watch me do stand up comedy instead? Then you'll see my writing in action. Right. And, uh, they were like, okay. So, uh, they came to the show or I was put on this, I was put on a comedy central showcase with about 30 other comics really very funny people but for some reason i don't know if your listeners know this or not but an industry showcase it's just it's a it's almost like a, a variety show of comedians the producers will decide you know they give the thumbs up or you'll be thrown to the lines yeah um and then i was the only one who got an actual good response from the audience that night it was a horrible audience <laughs> it was horrible yeah it was terrible it was like they'd been sent there they were all like they had the energy of methadone addicts. Ooh. They were they were just terrible, man. And so I don't know what happened, but I blacked out. And and when I came to, I had a job. That's so, awesome. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was 
very, I was very lucky. And um, yeah, after that, I kind of let the experience wash over me. And I decided to kind of like take what I learned and then input that into narrative, you know? Yeah. Like uh, just making maybe smaller stories, but stories that, that do carry the same weight um, uh, because they're imbued with the things that I learned at the nightly show. Gotcha. And became curious about, yeah, for sure. Yeah, because you've you've been writing, uh, you did like a show for BET and stuff, right? Yes, I wrote a sh- on a show called uh, First Wives Club, yep. which is the reboot of the old Bette Midler movie. But you know, it was it was so fun to write on that because it's like you know it's these three you know um, devil may care black women that are up to hijinks and you know just having a hell hell of a time, and it's it's <laughs> they get into all these predicaments. It's very you know it's like Golden Girls but younger. Yeah, I, I like it. I really like it and. You know, you'd be surprised how much, how political comedy can be. I mean, in, in the best way, you know, that big issues of the day come into play in the story, you know? So um, that was, that was cool. I really, I really liked that. And before that, I was writing for a show called Divorce um, on HBO with Sarah Jessica Parker, which was, that was, that was a pleasure to write for too. And that one, it was, it was just more or less about, I guess the, you know, for a lot of people, uh, disillusionment, the dry rot of the, you know, the upper middle class, white upper middle class, which I grew up watching and being kind of like a, um, almost a, a witness to, you yeah. know, um, kind of like, like one of my favorite characters is probably Nick Carraway from The Great Gatsby because, you know, he's in it, but not of it. Right. And always kind of like little on the outside watching what's going on. And I, and, um, but you could bring that, you know, what your stories to bear, in, in, in the in those spaces and and on that show and I got to do a lot of that which was which was fantastic that's that's so cool so you've been a writer you've been a comedian a stand-up comedian you've been a performer which of those do you prefer or do, do you need a do you need a good mix of all three <laughs> either creatively or just to pay the bills or like <laughs> <laughs> well everyone knows millionaires have three streams of revenue yeah. everybody knows that <laughs> all right but uh i i i feel like um writing was uh writing's my favorite thing to do but i couldn't have done it if i hadn't acted yeah first so um that was the most important building block because you know when you act or you do comedy you just learn you learn how people speak generally because you got to mimic that and then by doing stand-up you understand the metrics of comedy, what's going to make people laugh and what's just not going to make people fucking laugh. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you just inject that into the scene so that the scene becomes real. It becomes like, you know, authentic, but, or, or like, I, like I'm, I just wrote this show about, um, uh, it's really fun script that, uh, that, uh, it's called Holmes and it's about a man that he's a corrupt police officer in a, in a place called Bayou city, which, Strangely, looks a lot like New Orleans. Yeah, and in in it, the corrupt cop sustains a horrible and horrific injury. Right, horrible injury. Gets into a coma for seven years. While he's in the coma, his nurse is listening to the complete works of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah, and keeps calling him Holmes over and over again. But it's like homeboy, homie, Holmes. Right. When the man wakes up from his sleep, he thinks he's Sherlock Holmes, but goes <laughs> goes by H O M E S Holmes. Yep. Right. So. Now I'm in a world in this Bayou City world. It's completely corrupt, 
and but um you know and is a kind of like my my love letter to, to the 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 childhood summers I spent in New Orleans. Yeah. But that's that's what it is, right? So it's a wacky world, but people are are normal in it, which is what I had to learn. What I which is what I learned from comedy, and then you can input that in your writing. You know, it's how the comedian responds to to the situation to create situation comedy. Right. So even, so even in the in the first scene, you know, I mean, I I love. I was always I always wanted to be like a New Orleans homicide detective. I wanted to have a name like Zizou Boudreau, you know, like <laughs> just be on who knows what side of the law I'm on, you know. Yeah. But um, you know, that they call everything the police there. Everybody right. calls it the police, you know. So like um we the police. I remember hearing that one time, like, don't mess with me, we the police. Yeah. And I was like just in awe of these guys. Anyway, like one of the conversations that that this guy, the 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 bad cop has, I call him Zizi Boudreau, is he comes in, he his life is being threatened. His captain, uh, Honoré Baptiste, his life is being captain. That guy is being um, uh, is is on the line. And Honoré says something like, "Oh, they, they were both given bullets in the mail. One guy's bullet is the the captain's bullet is the biggest." And the captain says, "Oh, you got the fun size. Why do they call it the fun size?" When I get a Snickers bar, if it's smaller, I'm not having more fun. I want a big size. And then he's like, forget about it. I'm just rambling, you know, yeah. like that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But, but that kind of thing I, I love to put into into uh, a script because people don't speak. They they, they take tangents. They go right. off this way. They go off that way. And no place I know will teach you that more uh, than stand-up comedy. Yeah. The risking of it all. Right. You know? I mean, that's a stand-up bit, yeah. right? That you, you kind of took, took a stand-up piece and, and put it into a script there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's, what's fun about it in the room and the writer's room is so much more fun. I feel than a set because you're allowed to try and, and to make a mistake. Right. And it's okay. You know, we're, and, and we're kind of like creating this, uh, exquisite corpse of a, of a, of a story together we're cobbling it all together you yeah. know that I, I like that a lot more i mean stand-up is great it's just sometimes you know you you're foxhole friends with people and it's 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 a moment of individual achievement which i for one you know it's it's <laughs> Heath, it's cold out there let me just tell you <laughs> It's cold out there. It's nice to be in a writer's room. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think just to have, uh, just to be able to bounce those ideas off people too, right? That like w when you do a set as a stand-up, uh, unless you have a really good friend or someone that's listening to it and says, you know, I don't know if this part's working. Like you kind of have to check mm -hmm. that yourself, I guess, right? I, I don't know. I haven't done stand-up, but that's just sort of my sense of it from, a, from you know, an observer, I guess. Oh, but, for sure. But yeah, in the writer's room, you can be like, hey, what if it's this? And people can say, nah, I don't know. Or, you know, someone else can say, oh, but what if it's th that's good, but yes. take it that way. Take it the yes. other, make a left turn instead of a right turn there. And, you know. What's well, the yes and of it all, too? Right. Yeah. Right? Which is your whole background, right? That's improv. Absolutely. And it lets you do that for other people. Yeah. You know, not just to have it, you know, feed your, your psyche, but, you know, you can help other people along with their jokes. Because, you know, just because I, I, you know, I, I've been in in spaces where people are like, you know, um, that that idea is great. The only thing wrong with it is it didn't come from my head. Right. And, and you know, so um, I I have been fortunate um, to be in places where that is not the rule, and and it's more like people are willing to listen to different ideas, hear them out, 
see what see what floats you know on that sort of idea the writer's room you wrote a twitter thread i think about a week ago just sort of talking about uh being the diversity hire in a writer's room oh yeah can you can you talk about that a little bit and just sort of what you know your experience i guess with that with that role well i think uh, um before i say anything I, i would say that a sociologist would do a much better job with this than sure. I ever were. <laughs> Give a great TED talk on it. But I, I do think that um, it creates this um, situation wherein, um, or what's incentivized and what is put up with re- really is um, showrunners or the, the people with the power that, you know, with the power, let's say they have a, t- a distaste or a disdain or, or maybe not a disdain, but they do not prefer the company of people of color, at least, or at least them being on their on on their staff, right? I mean, that's just that's just the truth. Maybe it's not aggressive. Maybe it's not aggressive, but you know, it's one of those things like James Baldwin would say, like, um, "I try to believe you, but I see what you do." You mm. know what I'm saying? Yeah, sure. So, so let's just say that you know the proof is in the pudding. For whatever reason, you hire what the, the people that you hire yeah right what i've been told is people hire their friends it seems that they would only have white friends you know um so so I've, I've seen that before but but the point is that at the end of the hiring process when all is said and done there's this one nagging and annoying thing that the naacp has successfully um championed for which is you must uh you know hire a person of color right yep. and to make it palatable to the the producers they the 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 networks have taken the you know the the step of then paying for that writer themselves so it would not even come out of the budget for the show gotcha so so it's it's free yeah you know which i think is just it creates this unhealthy setup for the writer of color right right like because you're not wanted if you were wanted they'd come after you right you know so um you know, it, it then creates this insane kind of bonanza among very talented people of color that are all vying for one job. When everything else on the tree has been plucked, man, you know, and and you are you are scrambling for that one that one plum. As I said in the tweet, it's a knife fight. It's a yeah. total total knife fight and sorry is that is that like with uh, with the producer and trying to trying to get on the show or is that with the people that you're competing against or are you even aware sort of who else is going for it you're competing against all these people sure that you're not even aware of so it's giant black box somebody i mean uh and and only one will win so it's like highlander yeah or or you know or like conception one of us is getting there we're all trying one of us is getting there now i i i think that I, you know, and I don't know why I have to think of this stuff, but maybe you, maybe you hold some some other spots up the ladder for for people of color rather than the bottom. If you right. give them the bottom, then they'll always have an inferiority complex because it would seem to me that uh, that if we look at it logically, places are being held for white people. Right. So so why not just formally hold places? for people of color yeah. because they're informally being held for white people. Right. right. So that happens a lot. It happens more than, more than I think people like to, to let on. And there's a whole industry set up to, to groom people to get these jobs and um, to not want more than 
these jobs, you know, because once you're given the entry level position, it's really up to you to, to make the most of it. Now, a lot of people I know and have or a fair amount have done well off these programs, but I don't think that they speak to, you know, I don't, I don't think that they really speak to the, um, the insidious nature of uh, structural racism within these giant mega corporations and, you, you know, uh, these entertainment um, entities. Sure. Because it's just, you know, as we know, the, the, the last hired or the first fired. And you will never gain the traction if you're constantly trying for entry-level jobs. Right. Right. Or vying for entry-level jobs. And just trying uh, to kind of prove prove your 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 value and your worth and your place there right i mean that's that's sort of if if you weren't hired as part of that first round if the producer didn't say this is somebody i definitely want on my team if you know it's it's like being a little kid and your dad says you know hey go play with timmy next door he's a good kid i I don't want to play with timmy (laughs) like what yeah oh man timmy timmy yeah he's got nothing (laughs) absolutely i think what it is is there's this constant as I said in the thread, there's this constant uh, pressure to perform for people of color, yeah. right? To, to not only, okay, so you get in a writer's room. I, I've done this. I've gotten into a writer's room and the rest of the people, God bless them, are just boring. Yeah. You know what I mean? But you had to, they'll tell you and these programs will be like, you need to shine. You need to be different. You need to stand out. Hmm. You know, like, you're like, aren't I already standing out as the person of color? Right. I go in the room. And nobody looks like me. That's probably, yeah, I'm gonna stick out. Right. But this need for kind of like a hard luck story, as well. And and I think that like for me, I was told to tone down the story of like the fact that that my parents were successful because they they people don't want to hear that. Hmm. What they want to hear is that they want a sense of discovery. They want to feel as though they plucked you from the ash heap. Yeah. As though they're the the thing that's standing between you and chaos gotcha so to me it's um i i think that there's just i don't know man uh there's so much work to be done and i'm i am i feel good that people are finally open and down to do this boring work of of like dismantling uh toxic environments you know it feels like i don't know in some ways I feel like me too is sort of tied up in all this too, of just sort of, I don't know, like our generation just sort of putting our foot down at a certain point with sort of all this crap and just being like, we've had enough of it, you know, like whether it's sexual harassment in the workplace or racism or just like, you know, I feel like prior generations, it was just sort of like, well, that's part of the job. You just, just put on a happy face, you know, you gotta just, you gotta put up with it. And I hope we're at the point where, enough people are just kind of saying, yeah, this isn't working anymore. We got to, we got to reform the whole structure here. That's the hope, you know, it's really, it, you know, I think a lot of it is like, we need jobs. Jobs are a big part of our identity as Americans. Sure. And, um, you know, you spend more time before all this, we spent more time at the office than we did at home. And, you know, I never fought with my wife when I was like, when you're working, working. Yeah. I don't know anybody that then goes home and fights with their spouse. It's right. like, you're like, I'm so nice to my spouse when I have a gig, you yeah. know, like, yeah, you just, it's, everything's easy. You save all your resentments and your, you know, like your dysfunctional 
BS for the people that you work with. Right. Um, because that's prior to coronavirus, you know, that was really your family. Right. Which is why people, I think, kept wanting to hire people that they would say like, well, is this someone I'd want to spend 12 hours in a room with? Or is this somebody that I'd love to spend my weekends with? Yeah. You're, you're, you're literally shopping for family, right. which, is, which is insane to me. So um, yes, this generation, I think, and I have to give credit to the Gen Z's and the millennials uh, uh, that, are, that woke up and said, you know what, just screw it. And if there's enough of us that are saying screw it, then it's, it's, it, you can feel safe to say this is not right, yeah. you know, and that could be even more impactful. Like, oh, oh, okay, so you've been you've been experiencing this kind of backwards thinking for so long, and and you've known you've had this um, understood this dissonance that that you can point out to people, and it's sometimes even more helpful, I think, or can add a plurality to the points of view of people that have been in an industry for so long and point it out, right. you know, point out what's wrong with it rather than people that are coming from, uh, you know, they're just entering the, entering the whole uh, industry itself. I think it makes for a greater course, you know, and, and one of my friends, Sarah Ann Moss, she's, uh, she was one of the women who testified against Harvey Weinstein. I can say that she definitely, that that powerful group of women, you know, are changing business as usual in Hollywood. Yeah, totally. You know, it's, yeah. And it's about time. I mean, these are just picture shows, dude. This is just, you know, we're just making silly stories here. Right. Like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. Why are these people treated like kings? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I don't get it. Yeah. I hope there's change in the air around all this racial inequality stuff, too. I mean, that it, it'll be interesting to see sort of if, if this this surge of energy and just activism, if that if that leads to a productive place or if it ends up fizzling, you know, like I, I, it's, there's so so many times where there are these movements that just they have great inertia for a week or two and then they just kind of dissolve. And you're like, what happened there? You know, I, I hope. Well, it, a movement, I hope it's yeah. Not yeah. A movement always takes time. You know, a movement always takes time. I guess, what was the, you know, the NAACP was like founded in uh, the the early 1900s in oh, Niagara wow. Falls. And then you, you fast forward to like, 1945 when you finally integrate the the army and the armed forces but that was after world war ii you know so and then you finally get to 60 you know it's like the montgomery bus boycott is 56 then you get that was 56 then the civil rights act is like 1965 i'm sure those people were like how long right am i gonna keep marching if they had like fitbits back then my god man (laughs) (laughs) just blown up yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, I think all of it just takes time and because there's so many iterations of not only a movement, but the backlash to that movement, the the, the progress forward and what we, you know, like uh, and and this the slip back, you know, I mean, a lot of people have said that Barack Obama was a re- reconstruction president, you know, um, and I and I seem to believe that because at the end of reconstruction came Jim Crow mm. and, you know, like. And and this this need for white primacy and this this hysteria and and paranoia that we see played out today. Yeah. You know? I mean, I but I am through it all. Even though I'm a Gen Xer, I'm tail end Gen Xer. I was born in '78, uh, and I and we're like pessimism is our love language. Right. You know, when I was a kid, there was no such thing as you should you were never to be ambitious. That was a thing for losers. Ambition was frowned upon. People that had like strategies and decks and things like that you're like who, 
who is this a-hole? Right. But then you know what? The world was going to keep going without us. And I think that the generations uh, behind us, they feel totally rooted in what they want and totally confident in their, um, the ends, you know, their, their goals and the yeah. means by which they, go, they, they achieve their ends, you know? And I think that's really great. That's brilliant. I think Gen X people are like, but I could do this or I could do that. Right. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> or maybe nothing will ever happen. Fuck it. Let's get a drink. You know, right. like that. <laughs> will one of us be in charge? I mean, Kamala Harris is the closest to Gen X that could possibly be in charge if she were vice president. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. But then again, she might get up there and be like, ah, the hell with it. I don't know. <laughs> Screw it, guys. <laughs> let's, get, let's get a coffee. Come on. Yeah, I, that... I'm, 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 I am rear guard, but I am, I am confident change will come. Yeah. It, and, and like you say, it takes, it takes a long ass time sometimes. <laughs> and, uh, oh, God. Like, we were talking about the beginning, just the 13th amendment. That's like, yeah, slavery is illegal. Asterisk. Uh, you know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, I, I want to ask you one last thing, just sort of about the future of stand-up. And uh, I, I've seen you, you're oh doing these God. these shows, uh, these kind of drive-in comedy shows right now, right? Keith, I'm doing, I'm doing, we're, we're addicts. Do you understand? <laughs> it's, it's terrible. Yeah. It's, it's disgusting. If, if it were, if it were any other substance or, you know, any other vice, let me yeah. just say our loved ones would have talked to us by right after would have been an intervention is the addiction to laughter is that or or just the the feeling of being yeah. on stage what's the where's the high come from all of it all yeah. of it the stage high a stage high lasts you know it can last like five minutes to an hour after you get off stage you know yep. it's great it's a it's a total zoom dude and i'm so bad that i'm doing one tomorrow night on the back of a pickup truck in a at a like in Astoria in a, a, the parking lot of a diner. Yeah. It's, it's disgust. I mean, these are the, th- you know, like you sound like you're, you know, like I'm, I'm scoring some drug or something like that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Down the diner in Astoria. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> Behind the dumpster. <laughs> Bring the money. Yeah. Be good for it. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I'm not alone. I think I just saw a picture of like, you know, uh, Michael Che doing one last night um, in the back of a pickup truck like in um, Long Island city. Yeah. We just want to do what we do and we miss the microphone. Yeah. And I think Rock said, it. he said, I miss you microphone. Yeah. And when he was, um, he was there with Andrew Cuomo, um, you know, uh, trying to convince people to wear masks more. But um, yeah, I think you miss all that. You miss that kind of like, let's just say this, uh, every stand comedy to interrupt myself is, it is a dialogue between the comedian and the, and the audience. Yeah. Right. So, all you ever want to do is be understood. That's why people people are like, um, you ever notice this? You know what I mean? Isn't that crazy? Mm. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, that's it's just that conversation. You just don't want to die knowing that you're nuts, you know, what I mean? <laughs> or nuts by yourself. Like, right. at least everybody else sees this. They see this. So it's like with the isolation, there's been this inability to have that connection even though so much of the world is absurd now i mean even more absurd than it ever was you know i mean i'm still i'm like after after the this what we're in now right now this this burrito of doom i mean 
I I look back on fonder days when I was in lockdown for COVID. Right. When that was the only problem. Right. You know, like yeah. now it's just like how how much more sour cream can we put on this thing? <laughs> but like, we're gonna find out. We're gonna find out. Yeah. Um, what I'm trying to say is during those times, you know, you would write, even if it was just in your head, you notice things and you you'd try to try to note them, write them down, keep track of them because you're like, this would make a great joke or that would make a great joke or that would be really good or that would be good. And you know, that's, that's just, um, that's never going to go away. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's, you see the incongruities, uh, in, in our routines and, and our, and our futile effort to control our world. Right. And you want to, you want to note it, you know? And, and when you're doing these, these like drive-in sets in the back of a pickup, like what's, uh, how is that, how does that even work? Like, are, are you on a PA system? Is it like when I go to the drive-in movies, you have to like yeah. tune to like an FM radio station. That's like just in the, like, are, are people listening to loudspeakers or are they listening in their cars? It's going to be a loudspeaker. Okay. And at the end, I'll be like, a vote for Carlos is a vote for a chicken in every pot. You know what I'm saying? I'm gonna, I'm, a, I'm hitting the trail. Then I'm gonna, yeah. then I'm gonna hit the Bronx. You know, this is a tough district. But I think if you meet, you got heat. You got to meet people where they're at. You yeah. understand? That's <laughs> politics. That's the ground game. You got to get out there. So, um, yeah, I, I, it's insane. We're like doing a whistle stop thing. Yeah. Like in the back of this diner, <laughs> while people are, I mean, hopefully not listening to like serious radio and tuning right. this out. But it's just, yeah, it's gonna be ten minutes of glory. In fact, uh, I think New York Magazine is coming to do like a little story about it, which would be really cool. Yeah, nice. Um, also, it's like I'm totally out of practice, and it w- it would be nice just to knock the dust off this, right? Uh, you know, just a little bit, and and get back at it. You know, have you done so, any of like the Have you done any Zoom stand up or like just Instagram Live kind of stuff or any of that during this time? I or? have I have done it, but it's a totally different medium, right? You know, it's more of like that feels like a funny. Um, FaceTime call with a friend. Right. You know, and because the box then is even smaller than television, right? right? There's a weird dissonance. Like I said, the people know that you've come to tell them jokes, right? But in a stand up comedy club, it's just like, hey, how's it going? You can talk to the audience. You can break the fourth wall. Right. And this, it's just a wall of faces. Yeah. And you're like in a, this fucking panopticon and you've got to make it like, <laughs> you know, like, oh, uh, this is normal. Yeah. Um, right. Hey, everybody. You know, like, I can see you. You can't see me, prisoners. Right. So, um, yeah, that's it, – it's it's a tough shell to crack at first, and then you kind of get into it. Because sometimes I'll just be like, I'm going to do some jokes. I'm going to speak some jokes at you people. <laughs> and, uh, and that seems to work. Because yeah. I'm usually hosting it, and then I'll pass it to somebody else. Gotcha. That has at least had, had me to – go out there first bite the bullet so to speak it's yeah. crazy have you thought about sort of the return to a club like what that looks like and just sort of your comfort level like would you go up with a mask on <laughs> would you go up if you know if half oh. the room is empty like just that kind of all the weird logistics of sort of reopening comedy clubs like sure i thought about like you know i i had a i wanted to tape a special this year and um i'm really excited to if I do this special, yeah. I just get a giant gerbil ball and I come out on stage that way. What do you think? <laughs> so you're you're I encased. Mean, you're yeah. you're like a bubble boy for the whole thing. Absolutely, <laughs> Double, do a bubble boy. But then I come out, you know, because people people they wear of that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. They get a little, you know, a little tired of that. And then I jump out 
I do at least three hazmat changes during the show. <laughs> I'm talking puke yellow, orange, you know, white. Everybody likes, you know, like, <laughs> keep them guessing. Um, yeah, I, I feel like um, it will come back slowly. And uh, I do believe, you know, I, I'm morally superior. So I listen to a lot of podcasts, yeah. um, namely <laughs> um, The Daily yeah. uh, with Michael Barbaro. He's my favorite. Him and Ira Glass, uh, favorite high-pitched men ever. <laughs> so, you know, Michael Barrow has this guy on, and he's talking about one of the episodes was called The Hammer and the Dance. And he said that people are going to come out with out into into public life without any vaccine. Yep. Then we're literally going to see people uh, get, you know, get sick, and then we're going to be like, okay, everybody back indoors. Yeah. You know, so it's got to be this give and take. And until until we're, I don't know, maybe Dunzo Dunzo, <laughs> if, if that's a uh, technical term from Dr. Ouchie Fauci, Dunzo Dunzo, <laughs> uh, but, yeah. um, I don't, I won't feel completely comfortable, yeah, um, playing before a, a large crowd. But then again, you know, when did I ever? There were so many, so much is in the race to kill you in America. Yeah, I was always like, I'd do college shows, and I'd be like. This is this is when it's gonna happen. This is when somebody's gonna go crazy. When oh these yeah, incel dudes is gonna run in here. I swear to God, yeah. they're, gonna, they're gonna come in. And it would always be like I do my hour, and I'd be quick in, quick out. I'd yeah. be in the wind. You know what I mean? I'd be in the wind. I'd be like, "Good luck, kids. Yeah. I gotta go." Right. But now college, college isn't even a thing anymore, so it's fine. Uh, but but uh, I don't know. I don't know. I've, I've been in in New York so long. I survived uh, September 11th, the blackout, the brownout, Sandy, Irene, Giuliani. I, you know, <laughs> and I'm here, man. You yeah. Know, even after COVID, I'm here. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know. I don't know when things are gonna be back, but like you say, maybe at some point you just need to. I don't know. You know, put on your big boy pants and just go out into the world. <laughs> That's go out in the world, get sick and die. Yeah. So let me. <laughs> Let me ask you though. Yeah. But this old house, I mean, how will this old house keep making, you know, modifications to old houses in this world of COVID? You know, I, so it's, it's funny. I got laid off at the beginning of all this. So like, I'm, I'm out of work right now. I'm, I'm not with them anymore. So I don't know specifically what their plans are for this year. I mean, like, it's a weird thing because the construction industry at least in Massachusetts, is still able to continue. So, like, you know, a lot of the people I used to work with, I see, like, on Instagram and stuff, they're out at job sites every day and, you know, still renovating houses that, you know, they had for, like, private clients. But TV production can't happen, so there's not uh, there's not TV crews following them. So, you know, I, I don't know where it's going to end up for, you know, with this old house in particular. I know HGTV is doing, uh, they're trying to do, like, Zoom renovation shows, which that just feels really weird and not compelling. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, and it's weird for me, too, just trying to think about, like, you know, being out of work now for three months. Like, if I got a call for a job tomorrow, if somebody said, hey, we, we've got this thing that we just have to, you know, a hospital wants to do a thing on, on COVID and they need a crew to, to come out and, and shoot it. Like, would I go? And, you know, I got two little kids. I got a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. So that plays into it, obviously. But it's I feel like it's still going to be a while before I'm, like, super comfortable just being around a million people. I don't know. Oh, of course. Of course. I am I was never comfortable in the first place. Yeah, right. and, now, and now this? Yeah. Oh, my God. I know what you mean, man. There's, you're like, um, 
my agent was like, oh, yeah, man, uh, clubs in Alabama and um, Florida and Georgia on the Florida Georgia line are like, they're like, screw it. Yeah. You know, like, and I was like, okay, yeah, but, you know, man, <laughs> the Florida Georgia line, like, uh, yeah. is this my crowd, man? Right. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> hey, nothing, I mean, there's nothing wrong with Riviera, but, you know, I, I just, I feel that I know who, likes my stuff you know yeah. and i i just don't know if it's tuscaloosa yeah um so yeah it's it's a weird time as as we all know it but I, I think that that's a bit of the adventure in it all you know um and i kind of like that but uh yeah it, it there's obviously some decisions will have to be made and these are this is probably the hardest moment in my life that I've, that I've ever gone through, yeah. you know? So, and I'm sure it's that way for a lot of people. However, like comedy, what the, the best part of it, if, if there are any best parts, is that it's universal. It is happening to all of us. Right. From the crisis with uh, following the, the death of George Floyd to COVID-19, no one is spared of these crises. Now, it's, we're all in the same shitstorm. We might not all be in the same boat, but we're definitely all in the same storm. Yeah. You know, totally. So that gives me hope when I do comedy. It's, it's because that I, I don't think I've had more in common with my neighbors yeah. than I've had now. Yeah. I mean, there's people just having talks about like race, right? Um, like my neighbors and they just, they do not talk about race. Yeah, uh, man. You know, well, you get it. yeah, no, totally. But, uh, uh, I'm with you on the on the hope piece of it, and just that we are all in this together. And you know, hopefully, it all uh, it's it's a learning something for all of us, I guess. You know. Oh my God, I hope so. I hope this some lessons stay with Americans after this. Like Jesus, God, please let yeah. it just somebody you know come on, jackhammer it into your skull. Like these are we need to care for each other. We need to be empathetic towards each other. Yep. We, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. And when your leadership is being divisive, we have to come together as a people to get through a crisis. You yeah. know, that's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. You know? Just, right. yeah. See the humanity in each other. And just like you said, we're all in it together and, and that yeah. it applies to COVID, but it applies to, it applies to life, man. Right. Like we're just, yes. we're all on this little planet and let's just figure out how to get along with each other. I mean, for God's sakes. You know, like we're not going to be here long. I don't know how long I have here. I, and I, and there's no, you know, it's just your, like, like they used to say to me when I was a Boy Scout, you're just borrowing things for a little while. Mm. So please handle them with respect and handle them delicately for the next person that comes along. All right. Jordan Carlos covered a lot of ground there. He's a uh, man, he is, he is smart. He's funny. He's got so many different angles on all this. And uh, I'm really happy that uh, that I was able able to talk to him. That was fun. Go follow Jordan on Twitter, at Jordan Carlos. He's got information there about his spec script writing class at The Pit in New York City. Again, he's, he's a writer on First Wives Club on BET. And if you're able to dig up old episodes of The Nightly Show or uh, old segments even on YouTube, go watch some of them. It's such a great show. Larry Wilmore. Uh, is so great on it. And I got to say, too, if you're a fan of Larry's, go listen to his podcast, Black on the Air. Larry's just so good at at breaking down the news. And even though he's not on our TV every night, 
Uh, he does have a podcast, uh, maybe once or twice a month that, uh, where he shares the same perspective that he would have on, on the nightly show. So, uh, yeah, go listen to Larry's podcast as well and, uh, go follow Jordan. Speaking of following, you can follow me. I'm at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. And yeah, thanks for joining me for another episode of Quarantine Creatives. Got a new one coming on Monday. Make sure you subscribe so you get that first in your feed. Other than that, enjoy your weekend. Stay safe.